following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. I came across a great song this week called Hey There Delilah. And some of the verses I thought were worth quoting. Hey there Delilah, this is your ex-boyfriend Samson. I know you thought that lifting weights made me so buff and handsome. You were wrong. It's because I let my hair grow long that makes me strong. Why'd you grab your clipping shears and shave my head like Britney Spears? And now I'm standing here in total shame. You're to blame. Hey there Delilah, why did you have to deceive me? And it's hard for me to think not long ago I wanted you to be my bride. But you took too much off the sides. <laughs> That's great, eh? Well, I've been amazed as I've looked into this story this week, just the depth of meaning that's there. It's one of those stories that, that I've heard many times, and, and those of us that have grown up in some sort of Sunday school context know quite well. But uh, I've loved just delving deeper into the meaning of this story, and I feel like I've, I've struck this treasure that's contained this depth of meaning in the story that I get to come and share with you this morning. So let's walk through this uh, story together of Samson and Delilah. It starts really, this, this particular story, in verse 4, where Samson goes off to this place called the Valley of Sorek, and he sees a woman there called Delilah, who he falls in love with and wants to basically be with. There's no indication of them getting married, but he sees this woman and he desires her. It's the first time, actually, in Samson's life that there's any reference to him falling in love, not even for his wife, who we read about a couple of chapters ago, was that said, which is a bit of a worry. But he falls in love with Delilah, and she is the first woman in Samson's life who is named. Not even his mother is named in Scripture, but Delilah is, which is very significant and shows that she is the most important person in this whole story of Samson. So Samson and Delilah move in together, and the Philistine rulers come along and promise Delilah a whole lot of money, a whole lot of silver, if she can cajole out of him the secret to his great strength. Twice she asks him, Twice he gives her a wrong answer, and then finally she gives him this whole you don't really love me speech, turns on the tears, and Samson just can't stand it anymore, and he tells her the real secret to his strength, which of course is his long hair, and that if a razor is used on his head, if his hair is shaved, he's going to become weak just like any other man. So Delilah calls the Philistines one more time. They come, they hide in the room, and Delilah lulls Samson to sleep on her lap. Literally, it says that she began to weaken him. She shaves off his head, or not off his head, but his hair. And the Philistines come, Samson jumps up. He thinks it's going to be just like it was before, that he's going to be able to overpower these guys, but he doesn't realize the significant statement in verse 20, that the Lord had left him. It doesn't just say that his strength had gone, but that the Lord himself had left Samson. God has departed from Samson, and he's no longer helping and supporting this man. So the Philistines seize Samson, they bind him, they send him as a prisoner to Gaza where he's uh, forced into manual labor. And then there's a huge scene change, and now we're in the temple of the Philistine god, Dagon. And there's this great party because Samson's been captured, and the Philistines think of this as a victory of their god, Dagon, over their enemy, Samson. Just like when the Israelites win in battle, they think of it as the victory of Yahweh over their enemies. The Philistines are doing the same thing in reverse. And at the height of the party, they bring Samson out to entertain them. Samson is stood between the two big load-bearing pillars of the temple. 
He asks for his hands to be placed on these pillars and he prays this final prayer. It's an extraordinary prayer that Samson prays where he addresses God in verse 28 as sovereign Lord. It's the first time Samson's done that. First time at last that Samson acknowledges God as being sovereign over his life. It's so hopeful and yet the prayer just becomes completely selfish. And Samson prays, please God, let me get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Or some some translations say, let me with one blow get revenge for just one of my eyes. Ultimately, Samson can't see past himself. And there's no concern here with God's name, God's honor, God's glory. This is just a selfish prayer of a selfish man. But nevertheless, in some way, God answers his prayer and empowers him one last time. So Samson pushes down the pillars of the temple, brings the temple crashing down, kills thousands of Philistines in one blow. It's a pretty significant defeat, but it's interesting back to the original calling that was put on Samson's life, given to his parents, that Samson would be the one who delivers Israel from the Philistines. You get to the end of Samson's life, and that just hasn't happened, not even with this temple destruction. Philistines are still ruling over Israel, no indication of Israel being freed, no indication of Israel receiving their autonomy again. It's not until under David, generations later, that the Philistines are finally conquered. So Samson has ultimately failed. He's inflicted some pretty heavy casualties, but as a deliverer, as a judge, he's ultimately failed. In fact, even the statement at the end of verse 30, thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived, it's a pretty tragic statement. It sounds triumphant, but its meaning is tragic. In other words, he's basically better used to God dead than alive kills more people dead than he was able to in God's strength while he lived. So there's this great victory of Yahweh over Dagon, of God over the God of the Philistines, but Samson ends up an utterly tragic figure within Israel. He's wasted his life and basically squandered the gifts that he received. Now, what's fascinating about Samson is that he is the last judge mentioned in the whole book. There's still several chapters to go, but he's the last judge. And his story takes the longest to tell, and there's a reason for that. Samson has a particular significance in the book of Judges. Samson is not just an individual figure. Samson is a parable of Israel. He was an historical person. He really did live. But at a deeper level, Samson is a parable of the whole nation of Israel. And the author of Judges wants to hold this story up to Israel and say, You are this man. Look at his life and see yourselves in this mirror. And you start to think about the parallels. Samson was chosen and called by God. Israel, chosen and called by God. But Samson has been seduced. He's been enticed by a woman from among Israel's enemies, the Philistines, just as Israel has been seduced and canonized by the gods of the cultures around it. This is exactly the path that Israel has gone. And so... Samson has been overpowered by his enemies because the Lord left him in the same way. God has forsaken, in a sense, his people Israel and allowed them to be handed over to their enemies. Israel has been bound and seized and made a prisoner to the Philistines. And then the story continues because from this position of slavery, just like Samson, Israel cries out to God. And even then, 
Israel's prayer, like Samson, is ultimately selfish. This is what the author is showing us, that even in its distress, Israel cries out, and yet really its concern is just with its own freedom, its own autonomy, shaking off the slavery that they're in, not really with God's good name, not really with God's honor. And this story is held up to Israel to help the nation as a whole see that Israel is on its way to being a tragic figure in history unless they repent and return to God with all their heart. So I imagine that as this story was told through the generations of Israelites, that at one level, it's a story that that boys and girls would read and love the detail and the the delight of the story. And yet their mums and dads would come at it at a much more serious level. And as they read this story, they'd be thinking, are we still, Samson? To what degree is this still a parable of Israel? Are we faithful to God or are we being enticed away like Samson, weakened, handed over to our enemies and just crying out out of selfishness? It's a question for us too because I think at the broadest level, Samson is not just a parable of Israel, he's a parable of all humanity. He's a parable of every one of us. We're all loved and called by God and yet we've also been enticed. We've also been seduced by our own Delilah, haven't we? The things of our culture, the things of our world that act as Delilah. Delilah, I think, represents anything that entices our heart away from God. Anything that that exercises a seductive power over our lives and drags us down a path we know is destructive, or perhaps we don't even realize that it's destructive, but it leads us to damage relationships with our own self, with other people, and ultimately with God. We're all in some way being canonized by these Delilahs of our world. Maybe for you, Delilah is in the same sort of category it was for Samson. Samson, Maybe your Delilah is around the area of sexuality. Maybe it's the seduction of pornography. Maybe it's literally flirtatious behavior at work. You know, Delilah's name means to flirt. That's what Delilah means. And that basically sums up who she was. Maybe for you, that's your Delilah. Maybe there is someone in the office and it's just a bit of harmless banter and it's just the odd look and it's a few texts and it's a few words and it feels so harmless and it feels so playful. But you know, because you've seen the story of Len Brown this week, where that all ends up, right? You know how damaging that is. You see where that goes. But at the, t- at the beginning of it, it just has this hold in our heart And it doesn't seem like it's going to be a big deal. But at a deep level, maybe that is Delilah for you. And there's a seductive power that's going on there and you are being led down a dangerous road. Maybe for you, Delilah is money. And you have this enticement toward upward mobility, toward a particular lifestyle, toward greater financial independence. And it's crossed over for you from healthy, responsible use of your money towards compulsion and obsession, and you're wrecked with anxiety about it. And you find that more and more of your decisions, your priorities, your schedule, your planning is revolving around money. And if you're honest with yourself, you see in your heart that you are running after that God Jesus talked about, the God of mammon, the God of money. It's got a hold on your heart. You don't feel greedy. You just feel anxious. And that's the sign, that deep anxiety about money that won't go away. Maybe for you, Delilah is some form of power. You've got some significant position of responsibility and you find yourself starting to have an attitude of superiority towards other people. 
just looking down at them. You clutch that power base. You don't want to share power. You don't want to give it away. You don't want to let other people in. Out of your own insecurity, you find yourself clutching onto power and trying to strengthen the power that you've got within the community that you're in. And you know in your heart, this is Delilah. This has got a seductive grip on your heart. I think these three things, sex, money, power, are the big three Delilahs in our culture. There's many more we could mention. Maybe yours isn't on that list, but I think those are probably the biggest ones that we face in modern Western culture. And you can go two ways with this. Either you can live in denial of it, and even as I'm talking, you're justifying and rationalizing and excusing and explaining, or you can own up to it, but you feel powerless, don't you? And maybe some of you are in that place. You know that you're being seduced by some sort of Delilah, but you just feel utterly powerless. Maybe you feel like you're in prison with Samson. And you're completely entrapped by this thing. And it's like the more you try to get out of it, the more powerless you become. Your own self-control or willpower is a pretty spluttery engine to get you to the top of the hill. It's just not working. You feel with Samson sometimes like your eyes have been gouged out. You've just lost any vision that life could be any different to what it is. You've lost your hope now too. And I think the beauty of the story is that it's, it's from that position in prison with Samson that we see the greatest meaning in the story. And we see that ultimately, Samson is not just a parable of Israel. Ultimately, he's not just a parable of humanity. Ultimately, Samson is a signpost to Jesus. Ultimately, Samson points us to the gospel. There are some striking parallels in the story between the story of Samson and Delilah and the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Samson's demise starts with betrayal. He's betrayed by his, the person closest to him. Who does that sound like? Judas. Jesus is betrayed by... Even the, even the nature of the betrayals sounds similar. Silver is exchanged. In Jesus' case, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Samson's case, betrayed for about 13 kgs of silver. So apparently Jesus' life is less important and valuable than Samson's life. Both men betrayed by someone they love. Both men are weakened by their enemy. And in some sense, both men are forsaken by God. For Samson, we read that the Lord left him. For Jesus, we read of him in the cross crying out, My God, why have you forsaken me? This cry of desolation because God has not stepped in to save him. Both Samson and Jesus experience this moment of God-forsakenness. Both are seized by their enemies. Both are led to be prisoners to their enemies. And then in their moment of weakness, both cry out to God. But the prayers they pray couldn't be more different. Samson cries out for revenge on his enemies. Jesus cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus cries out for mercy on his enemies, where Samson cries out for revenge. Samson is selfish to the end. Jesus, selfless to the end. And then in their death, Samson's death only achieves this partial defeat of the Philistines. Wipes out the upper echelon of their leadership, but doesn't destabilize their power base. But in the death of Jesus, God achieves a comprehensive victory. And not just over a tribal deity like Dagon, but over the author of evil, the ultimate enemy of God, Satan himself. God defeats him through the death of Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus. 
God defeats Satan fully, finally, completely, brings him down, defeats evil and the powers of darkness and the power of sin and achieves a cosmic victory that redeems creation, redeems all those who belong to Jesus. So now Jesus comes as the deliverer that Samson could never be, the great judge that all the judges always pointed to and fell short of. Jesus, greater than Jephthah, greater than Gideon, greater than Samson, the great one true judge who brings about this deliverance that God's people could only have dreamt of in the Old Testament, a deliverance out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son He loves, as Paul puts it, out of the kingdom of sin and death, out of captivity to the one who holds the power of death, into freedom into forgiveness, into the spacious place where Jesus delivers us into the arms of God and we find healing and we find freedom and we find our true selves forgiven and loved by God. That's the deliverance that Jesus brings about. That's ultimately what the story of Samson and the whole sweep of Scripture is supposed to do, to be a massive signpost to the gospel and say, for all the failures of this man, his life forms a contrast to the one true deliverer who has come, Jesus. And so Jesus delivers us and frees us from the very things that seduce us in our lives, the very Delilah things that get under our skin and entice us away from God. Jesus brings forgiveness for those things, even though they still wage war against us, even though we still struggle every day with those forces and those powers that wage war against our soul. The starting point to dealing with those things is to recognize that if you belong to Jesus, you are forgiven, you are freed, and you stand in the grace of God. Even though we are so unworthy, even though we feel so inadequate, you're forgiven. You really are, you're forgiven. You've been redeemed. I went on the spiritual retreat while I was on sabbatical. And there was a point in that week where I was just feeling really low, just really down on myself. You know how you get that way? Sometimes I do especially. I'm a melancholic. Just, just feeling just overwhelmed by my own weaknesses and limitations and failures. And the words that came into my head in that moment were the words of a song. A song called Redeemed by Big Daddy Weave. I've played it before here. And one particular line from that song just struck my heart where it says of God he looked at this prisoner and said to me son stop fighting a fight that's already been won and it just just penetrated to the depth of my heart just that idea I was fighting this fight trying to be something trying to lift myself up by my own bootstraps make myself feel better and just that voice of God saying son Stop fighting a fight that's already been won. He's already won it. He's already rescued you. You're already clean before Him. Even though we get ourselves so filthy, we stand before God clean. We stand before God, not objects of His wrath, but objects of His great mercy because of Jesus. We just soak in His mercy. And I think it's from that place of deep security and anchorage in the grace of Jesus, that we're able to then look at the Delilahs in our life and start to deal with them. If you just run off and try to be better and behave yourself and try harder, it's a losing battle. Only as we are steeped in the grace of God can we begin to confront those forces 
that come against us and entice us away from God. And just at a practical level, it seems to me that where Samson really started going wrong here was right at the beginning of the story when he goes down to this place called the Valley of Sorek and sees Delilah and falls in love with her. The Valley of Sorek was Philistine territory, full of Philistine, full of the enemies of God's people. It was Philistine inhabited land. So you have to ask the question, what is Samson doing in the Valley of Sorek? What was he doing a long way from home? What's he doing there? I think the only answer is he was just playing with danger. He was just flirting with it. He just had this love-hate relationship with the Philistines and he couldn't quite keep away. I think there's a lesson there for us. As we look at these forces in our life, whether it's sex, money, power, whatever it is, what is that valley of Sorek for you? Because Proverbs 5 says to us that in those areas of temptation, we are to keep to a path far from them and not go near the door of their house. So what does that mean? What are those situations that you find yourself getting into that make you most vulnerable to temptation? That make you most weak, most susceptible to being led astray? Because it's pretty hard when you're already being seduced to sleep on Delilah's lap to resist those forces. The battle so often is won or lost much, much earlier. Where does that cycle of temptation start for you? Maybe in your mind, maybe with the smallest of actions. Can you identify how that Delilah power is getting in and how it's getting a grip on your heart at the earliest stage? Can you put up some sort of protective boundary or fence in your life to prevent you from being in certain situations? We all know, what's that situation? What's that person? What's that place? What's that situation that I know? If I'm there, I'm going to be weak. If I'm there, I'm going to be tempted. If I'm there, then it's not going to be easy for me. Can you draw some sort of fence around that in your life to prevent you getting into that temptation hot zone? You know, just at a practical level, what this, one of the things this looks like for me is that if I'm home by myself, I don't go on the internet. And if I'm at the office by myself, I don't go on the internet. It's just a protective thing that Anna and I have talked about to prevent me from being in spaces where I'm going to be susceptible to temptation. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to do that, but think about what this means in your own life. Are there things, practical things that you can do? Maybe if for you, Delilah is money and this thirst after the accumulation of wealth. Maybe for you, the counter practice, maybe the protective boundary is generosity. Maybe disciplining yourself to give money away is what's going to release a grip on your own finances the most. What is that thing for you that is going to help prevent you from even being in the valley of Sorek to start with? And you know another thing where Samson has something to teach us, I think, is, is he seems to me like such a solitary guy. He really is never in community. We don't see him in any close relationships that are authentic and real. He just lives by himself alone and therefore just completely led by his own impulses. I think there's a lesson there for us, that we're not meant to battle this stuff alone. We're not meant to go through our own Delilah experiences by ourselves, but we are created to journey through these things in community with other people, to draw other people around us and to give them permission to ask us some hard questions about our own life. So maybe for you, there's a courageous conversation that has to happen. I heard that expression this last week, courageous conversation. I thought it was really good. 
Are we willing to have a courageous conversation with someone? Let them in to an area of struggle. Let them in to what you're going through and ask them to hold you accountable or even just to pray for you and be present with you and walk with you through the struggle that you're facing. We can't defeat Delilah on our own. We are up against the great forces of our world and our culture. We need one another and we need the power and the strength of Christ's spirit to be faithful. So as I look at the story now, one of the things that has just struck me is just the genius of God's word and the way that this story speaks in the whole context of the Bible. I mean, isn't it unbelievable that this story points us to Israel and then it points us to Jesus and then it becomes a mirror on our own life and there's these layers of meaning. It's the beauty of how the whole biblical story unfolds. And I just hope that this becomes more for you than just a child's Sunday school story. Much as there's power at that level too, I hope that it becomes something for you that can really speak into your life with both hope and strength. Hope because we see in Samson the great deliverer Jesus. Every time we look at Samson, our next glance should be to the cross, to Jesus, the one who fulfills what Samson couldn't. Draw hope from that fact that Jesus has come, you are redeemed and you are delivered and you're freed already and sin does not have any real power over you anymore. It's not your master. And strength because Christ now comes to us by his spirit and gives us his power within us to face the very things that entice us and seduce us and distract us from our walk with Christ and hinder us in becoming the kind of people, the kind of human beings that God truly desires us to be. Christ gives us strength to face those things one day at a time. So as we head towards the Lord's table this morning, I want to play that song for you uh, over uh, on iPod, that song, Redeemed. And the chorus just says, I am redeemed. You set me free. So I'll shake off these heavy chains, wipe away every stain, because I'm not who I used to be. I'm redeemed. Just great truths to soak in as we come to the table and receive the wafer and the juice that remind us again of God's infinite grace to us that was expressed in Jesus. Let's pray as we prepare ourselves for that time. Jesus, thank you that you are our deliverer, the great judge, the great redeemer. We thank you, Jesus, that you have brought us freedom and life. But God, you know we still battle. Our hearts are still so prone to wander from you. And we face these temptations every day. We feel weak. So Jesus, we pray this morning for the fresh strengthening of your spirit to lead us forward in the journey against these Delilahs in our life. We pray that by your spirit, you would give us the strength to put to death those things that seek to entice us away from you. Give us clean hands and a pure heart, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.